Having discussions around feedback and performance have always been important. In the days of COVID, it's even more so. We don't have those live interactions with our employees. We're working with most of them and collaborating remotely through remote tools, Zoom, Slack, whatever else we've got. How do we make sure that we're having the right kind of discussions and delivering support and feedback in the right ways during COVID times? I'm going to be getting into that with the chief people person for RippleWorks, Sunghae Kim, after a brief word from our sponsor. Redefining HR one podcast at a time. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling your employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout their journey, from onboarding to promotions and everywhere in between. PIN helps companies battle communication overload and puts your employees in control over when and how they receive information. Go to PINHQ.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. Reinvent employee communications for the distributed workplace. And now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining HR podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I am joined by the chief people person at RippleWorks, Sunghae Kim. We're going to talk about Sunghae's career across HR, which has spanned you know, multiple companies in different industries with definitely a heavy tech lean. And we're also going to spend some time talking about feedback and giving feedback and how to approach that. So Sunghae, thanks so much for making time for the show. If you wouldn't mind, why don't you give the listeners an introduction on you? Yeah, but first of all, I really want to thank you for having me on your podcast. I remember when you first announced this within our People Network that you're going to be doing this podcast. And I thought this is going to be massively successful, especially this year. And to be honest, I was a little envious because I thought, oh, I wish I had thought about that. (laughs) Given the experts that you've hosted, including some of my favorite leaders, I'm just really honored to be here. So I work at RippleWorks, which is truly my dream job. It's a very unique model in that we're a nonprofit foundation that helps entrepreneurs in the social impact space scale their companies. And what we do is we pair them up with experts, for example, in Silicon Valley who have expertise and want to give back. And the social impact ventures really could benefit from their skills. Yeah, you know, that's it's a fascinating space. And I imagine particularly at this time, you know, given all things 2020, the uh, the demand for for people, people giving back within uh, that portfolio has got to be pretty massive. It's it's incredibly massive. And we've actually thought about how we can focus on what's needed right now, critically, balancing that with our long-term strategy. And so some of the things that we've been helping with our ventures is how to deal with financial crises that are related to the pandemic, as well as all of the people-related needs and thinking and strategies to help with the pandemic and help the organization cope and their teams cope with the pandemic. So it's been super interesting. Yeah, well, I definitely want to spend some more time on RippleWorks, but I want to really kind of get started with your start, you know, what, what originally you've worked in HR in most of your career, almost all of your career, what, what originally drew you to the field? Yeah, I was thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this because now I'm at my dream job and I was reflecting on how I got here. 
When I was a kid, I loved watching TV shows that explained how things were made. And these were segments like on PBS. Back then we had, I think, five TV stations that we could watch. And um, I, I watched a lot of PBS. And so there were these shows that, sh that talked about real life for kids to see what it was like in the world and how, you know, how people worked. And the ones that I loved that showed how mass produced food was made. And I was so fascinated with factory workers and how they interacted with machines to get stuff made. Then, it then zoom into college, I took a general psychology course and, there, and then learned about industrial organizational psychology and this, decided to major in that. And that was because it was the science of people at work and how they interacted to make things. And what interested me most was what motivated people at work. So I ended up getting my master's degree in IO psychology. And then the very first job interview I had was for a labor relations internship for Lever Brothers in one of their soap factories in Maryland. During that interview, the recruiter, he was actually called the employment officer, gave me some great advice. And he said, I think you should try HR or was that what was actually known back then as personnel management yeah. instead of labor relations. Um, it can get really rough here at the factory. I was so disappointed because I wanted to watch people make soap all day long. <laughs> that was my dream. <laughs> and then if you, <laughs> if you can imagine, so I'm just over five feet and about a hundred pounds and I didn't have the interviewing skills and probably the character at the time to push back and persuade that recruiter that I could overcome any challenges for an internship in a factory. But that then led, led me to magically land an internship in DC for the federal government. And it was a great opportunity for me to then get rotated into different departments with knowledge workers within HR. And so I started off in employee records, then went into recruiting and then training and development. And I love training and development. At that time, the field of OD, organizational development, was just emerging. And so after my internship, I was able to work in this newly developed OD department for that agency. And I absolutely loved that role because I got to learn what it was like to be an internal consultant, analyzing business needs, and then partnering with, partnering with the leaders to then implement these jointly agreed solutions. It was, it was this lovely collaborative consulting about people and teams and leadership. But I still kind of regret that I didn't get to see the inside of that soap factory. <laughs> I did. I did, however, eventually in my career have a chance to deal with labor unions. And let me tell you, I am really glad that I decided to focus on other areas of HR. All right. You know, and it's interesting too. I mean, you, uh, you know, kind of getting your start there and obviously in the federal government and then kind of transitioning to mostly tech, you know, in, in, in the, you know, the, the re more recent part of your career, what was that shift like for you? Like what, uh, you know, obviously once you moved over to tech, you, you stayed in that space. And I believe a lot of that time you were, some of that time you were abroad, some of that time you were in the Bay area. So part of this may have been geographic, but what, what was it about the tech domain specifically that kind of kept you there? You know, it's, I think it was that I kept learning when I first joined the tech industry, it was really because I had learned about all of these great practices that 
tech HR or um, people people were doing. And they seemed to value that skill because it was rooted in science. So for example, um, the first tech company I ever worked with, and do you remember, you know, we called this, this high tech? <laughs> was, oh, oh, yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. Now it's, 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 it's much more granulated now, but um, I worked at Lucid Technologies, which was actually a spin out of AT&T, which used to be Western Electric. And Western Electric was where some groundbreaking studies like the Hawthorne studies took place, where they observed people at work. And they would change things and they would say, oh, performance went up, performance went down. And so that's why I really gravitated toward tech, because uh, that's where HR was kind of rooted very much in research and science. And I, I was just always constantly learning. And, you know, I'm curious, you your role now, so obviously now we're going to get, you know, I want to shift into your your current role and talk a little about that. And uh, it was interesting when I was, you know, kind of looking at your background ahead of this conversation and saw that you uh, actually joined RippleWorks in, oh, you know, March of 2020, right? When the world uh, kind of turned upside down with the, uh, the pandemic. Like, what in the world was that like? Like, what was it like starting a new job, you know, onboarding, especially in a role like yours, where you're, you know, the, the role of a, of a CPO was, you know, instrumental within organizations, uh, you know, certainly at all times, but absolutely in March of 2020. So what was that, you know, talk about kind of getting thrust into the fire uh, right as you began your role. What was that like for you? It was fascinating, really challenging, but also a little reassuring, knowing that you can add value the, as a people leader to help others through a major transition and especially with Doug Galen, who is our CEO, who is incredibly people-centric. What's interesting is that prior to RippleWorks, I worked for a brief period for GitLab, which is very well known for being one of the largest fully remote companies. And you can just go to their website if you want any advice on how to move towards fully remote or how to manage or how to do one-on-ones, how to engage people. It's all in their online handbook. So they don't and probably will never have offices. I, I realized pretty quickly at GitLab, which I'm certain will continue to be a massively successful company and it has a really strong culture. Um, I, it wasn't for me. So you're right. I joined RippleWorks right when the pandemic blew up. And a few days later, before I started, the CEO of RippleWorks and I talked about whether or not we should have people work from home. This was before it was in force with shelter at home guidelines. So I started RippleWorks as a fully remote employee. And in some ways, my experience at GitLab really helped think through the transition for our employees, most of whom who loved coming into our lovely office in Redwood City. I know it was really challenging for our team members who love spending time with each other in person. And we engaged with them to get all their ideas and ongoing feedback to make the best of remote work. But it, it, yeah, I mean, it's still hard for everyone. And I do need to remember that it's often harder on them than it has been for me because I was more accustomed to working remotely. But we've been allowing our team members to work in the office if and when they want with restrictions on how many can be there at one time. I was even in the office yesterday and it was so nice to work 10 feet away from another person. <laughs> and we were able to go out and have lunch outside. I think 
years from now, we're going to look back on this moment and remember what isolation was like and how slowly the little things like social distant walks and lunches outdoors did a lot to stay connected. And for Ripplework, since March, we've hired quite a few people remotely, and we've had to be extremely high touch in our recruiting and onboarding processes and engaging with the team to make the best out of all of this. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that it's it's been a forcing factor to really, uh, you know, focus on the on the humanity of the process, right? Um, you know, we we I think the art of onboarding uh, and, and recruiting oftentimes can be, you know, lack some humanity. We're trying to optimize, we're trying to be efficient. And, uh, you know, in doing so, I think it sometimes removes us from that, that one-to-one qu- connection. And more importantly, I think that deeper understanding of how, you know, a- emotional and stressful and, and everything, you know, moving to a new job actually is. And so I, I think that this is really... Um, caused us to to focus on that in ways maybe that we you know hadn't as much recently as we've been you know really looking to kind of optimize how we do things. You know, I'm curious for you, Sunghae, like you're you're in. I think for most uh, people in the the executive role within HR, whether it's a you know CHRO, CPO, head of people, whatever the title might be, who are guiding their companies through this, they had the benefit of time, right? They had been there. They kind of understand they had relationships. They understand the organizational rhythms. They understood uh, the leadership style and how they work together and how they communicate and what the appetite for that is. You know, you walking in at the point you're making all these decisions and supporting the executive team in doing so, you didn't have that, that kind of legacy knowledge, that historical knowledge. How did you overcome that, right? As you're, as you're kind of working with your executive team and working with the organization to kind of chart your path uh, for the, you know, kind of right in the middle of the pandemic and beyond world. Uh, How did you do that without kind of the benefit of those relationships, that organizational institutional knowledge, et cetera? Yeah, I think I learned quite a bit, you know, at GitLab, I also was always a hundred percent remote. And so there were some practices that GitLab had that you could kind of transport anywhere. But one of the things that I really had to do coming into RippleWorks was rely heavily on direction from the leadership team and feedback from all team members. And purposely, especially in my role, I'm supposed to be, I'm the one that's looking after people, making sure that we have psychological safety, making sure that team members are taken care of. So I have to spend a lot of time with individuals and get feedback from them. And everything that we do as a company, we, we need to get feedback and all of the ideas, collaborate on ideas together. We're all in this together. So let's come up with ideas to be more engaged, to take care of each other, to check in with each other and to be able to work in uh, more flexibility and how we do things more asynchronously and get better at documenting things um, for people who you can't see all the time and and meet with all the time. So I relied heavily on on the people in the team and they were very patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think uh, I, I think that helps. And I, as you think also about, uh, I think one of the things that a lot of us are struggling with now is you know, knowing that we're going to be in this, whether it's uh, you know all remote, hybrid, remote first, digital anywhere. I mean, there's a, a range of ways that we're we're thinking about this uh, and, and structuring this. But I think one of the things that is certainly uh, front of mind for for most operators is culture, and you know, especially for organizations that were a co-located, you know, in-office culture. And now they're, if not fully distributed, they have a hybrid model. Um, that's probably going to be happening for the, you know, uh, foreseeable future, as far as we could tell, particularly for those of offices in the U S. Um, what are some, you know, I know that obviously you're experiencing now at RippleWorks, uh, you, you probably have some perspective on this from your time at GitLab. What are some ways that people executives and people operators can create, you know, programs and systems and structures that support culture uh, in environments where, again, especially for those organizations that shifted from, you know, in office to distributed and they don't have necessarily those those uh, kind of cultural customs and rhythms that a place like GitLab might, who has always been kind of completely distributed. Um, what are some things they can do to help kind of keep their in- employees uh, engaged and supported? So I think the first thing is to have a very strong and artic- well-articulated culture, because if you didn't have this before having a distributed, having distributed teams, it's it's much harder to build that within a remote di- distributed environment. And once you do define your culture, it's good to do a culture audit against all of your current practices, the ones that relied on um, not remote or, you know, in person and and go through each people practice, audit them and adjust them to make sure that in the remote environment, whatever you're doing is augmenting or amplifying your culture and making sure it manifests with your practices. So it could be things like, how you do one-on-ones, especially how you onboard people, how you give feedback, how you interact as a team. One of the most interesting things that I've seen fun pra- are the fun practices that team members come up with on their own. Our company recently did a virtual Olympics, if you will, and we had teams that competed with each other in games like rolling an Oreo from your forehead to your mouth and dressing up your pets in costumes. <laughs> And it was it, fun as part of our culture. And so yeah. we actively integrate that into a remote environment where it's harder to do, um, but we still do it. And then generally, I think what's important is that you also make space in your Zoom meeting filled calendars to connect in various ways. And you allow for asynchronous work to happen easily and have a culture that supports that. Um, Asynchronous work was a huge part of GitLab and how they supported their culture of collaboration results, focus, efficiency, and transparency. And so they defined the culture and then then all of the people practices actually then go along with that, like having documentation for everyone so that they don't have to attend meetings at all different hours. So having those aspects of your culture then built into your people practices to make sure that it works effectively, whether you're remote or in person. 
And I want to pick up on uh, one thing you said there as it relates to the shift to distributed, which is um, providing feedback, you know, providing feedback to employees. Like, I know that that's a topic that is, um, you know, it's it's an area you're passionate about specifically. A couple of years ago, you wrote a post about, you know, being able to provide feedback without hurting employees. You know, and I'm curious if you could elaborate a bit more on kind of the thinking there, but then also how that translates to an environment where, uh, you know, people are distributed and, and you're not even necessarily having those, you know, intimate live in person one-on-one discussions around feedback and performance. It's so much more important in a remote environment, but it, my thinking kind of came from years of experience, seeing how feedback creates anxiety in people, including myself. So imagine I'm your manager, Lars, and I say to you, I need to give you feedback. Doesn't that raise your blood pressure a little? Just that word feedback often means- Yeah, I don't feel like, I, <laughs> I don't feel like good things are about to happen. Exactly. So that word is connected with constructive criticism. And we forget the that feedback also is about recognition or praise. And it actually should be far more about recognition or praise. And I mean, really, who wants when they say, I want feedback? It's not, there's not saying, I only want to hear criticism. And now that there's so much emphasis on moving away from that annual performance review, which I completely agree with, it is a massive waste of time in a condensed period (laughs) to ongoing feedback. A lot of people think, well, ongoing feedback needs, I, I need to give more critical feedback. What I think is far more valuable than focusing on checking performance is making sure that your organization spends energy purposeful energy on growing people and having them be clear, be very clear about what they want to learn from the role. People come to work to make a living and also to learn. And then the opportunities that the company can provide, but we just don't spend enough time on that. It's somehow harder to put that into practice than checking performance. And if you think about school, what if school was just about learning and there were no grades or marks would people still learn and develop? Absolutely. Not only that, but more people would successfully successfully complete school. So I think for feedback to be effective, we need to reframe feedback and remember that recognition of something well done is also feedback and more valuable because it helps mobilize people towards a positive direction. And then we should change that stimulus response to feedback from a response of dread to one of more openness and that it becomes a true gift because let's be honest, not all feedback is really a gift and feedback when it is a gift builds the person up and motivates them rather than leaving them feeling bad about themselves or confused. Yeah. And I'm, you know, it's interesting. I think as we talk about feedback and conversation and communication, I think particularly, you know, if we're staying within the the world of tech, uh, where, you know, for years we've lionized this idea of radical candor, right. And that, uh, that that's the way that we should behave. That's the way that we should have conversations. And, you know, I think radical candor with context and at times perhaps, training in terms of like what it is and how to use it constructively. I think that can be really helpful. I don't think a lot of companies do that. I think a lot of them brace this notion of radical candor with no kind of double click guidance or definition on what that means. And then you have people that can uh, see that as a path to be jerks, 
right? And just say whatever they want and say what's on their mind and not be constructive uh, and not be helpful. And so when in an environment now where so many companies, again, have shifted to distributed work, what are the risks that you see for companies that, you know, outwardly state that they embrace radical candor? Definitely psychological safety. So yeah. I think that candor, radical candor, has a place, especially when harm is being done or about to be done, or when there's a business risk. You need to be frank, honest, factual, and quick. Tear off that Band-Aid. I also think it's useful when someone says, hey, I'm working on a specific skill or something specific, and I want you to flag when I'm off track. I'm inviting you to do that. I'm inviting you to have candor with me. So for example, I'm working on being more succinct in my presentations. I'm working on having better follow through on this project. Then you've been invited to, to, to be, to have that candor. But I don't think it's appropriate for ongoing motivational feedback um, unless, it's, uh, unless it's done with that consent because it does break down psychological safety, which is about building trust, mutual respectful relationships where people can uh, be open with their ideas. So I would like to offer a different approach, if I may. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of models that I like, and this has evolved um, over time. One is called the ASK model that I learned from Pivotal Labs. Um, and that is ensuring that feedback you give is actionable, specific, and kind. So that's ask. As an example, let's say you have toddlers jumping on the sofa. Instead of saying, stop jumping on my sofa, you should say, hey, kids, why don't you go jump outside? So that's actionable and specific. You're focusing on what the person can do. And by the way, you're, you should also be able to role model that behavior too. There's nothing... Worse than getting feedback from someone who isn't able to role model what they want you to do. I've also been listening a lot to Marshall Goldsmith's approach to coaching after he's now been doing this for decades. And I think argu arguably is one of the world's gurus on coaching and feedback. And now he's sharing his wisdom. And I love how he talks about the need to sometimes just let things go. You don't always have to say something or teach something. People learn. That's what that's something that we always are able to do. So there's a model that I'm working on right now. And it's for the person with feedback to give, to think about and categorize what kind of feedback is this? So let's think about numbers one through five, and I'm going to flip it and I'll show you how. <clears throat> so one could be what I talked about, urgent and important where harm is being done, business conduct violation, harassment, bullying, law breaking, along those lines. That is the highest category of feedback and that needs to be done immediately and directly. Action has to be taken quickly. Two is a pattern of lack of performance or behavior, or you have some behavior concerns that have become a pattern. This is where you give feedback in terms of the situation, behavior, impact, and you would you may also need a performance improve, improvement plan depending on the situation. It's true performance feedback. Then three, is more of a course correction. For example, when someone is leading a project and they just need to course correct. Four is a mistake when someone is learning a new skill or experimenting. And five is an observation information. Hey, 
I noticed this, I should let the person know, I'm not sure, I'm not even sure how valuable it is, but I need to get this off my chest. So the problem with ongoing feedback is that a lot of people think they need to give consistent feedback on the four and five, like that, that observation or get something off your chest. When actual, in actuality, it may not even be that important. You can let it go. People will be people. They have different ways of doing things than you do. People make mistakes while they're learning. Are you And you want to encourage them to experiment and make mistakes and learn from their mistakes, and that's okay. So instead, flip it and let's apply the categories to mo- motivational feedback. One, major milestone that someone accomplished. Two is a skill that was acquired, for example, that was in someone's development plan. Three is someone course corrected on their own. Four is someone learned a mistake, learned from their mistake or when they or they tried something new and they took the courage and then they they talked about the learnings from that risk. Five is then I, I like something that someone did and I want to tell them. As people managers, as leaders, shouldn't our main goal be to motivate and encourage people? And this means to focus far more energy on that positive feedback, especially the five through two that I mentioned, and not, I liked what you did there. But we often do a lot of feedback about what we liked about something that someone did. Yeah, you know, I think that that the way you frame that is really interesting, and I think it's a great takeaway for listeners. Is just you know the 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 focus should be uh, a big focus should be on building up behavior and and reinforcing positive behavior and recognition. I think that's even more so important these days when people are remote and they're not getting uh, that same level of kind of in person. Um, connection, thanks, whatever you know, however you may frame those. Some maybe something the kind of company customs that you may have as a co-located uh, office, you know, so you have to find ways to kind of match that feeling and that spirit uh, in, in other capacities when people are remote. Um, Sung, hey, last question for you, you know, is you, for listeners that, uh, you know, are interested in the framework you've laid out, they want to learn more about um, performance, coaching, feedback. What are your favorite resources? What are, what are some uh, things that uh, uh, could be links, could be, um, people, um, platforms, what, what would you recommend people check out? Oh, a couple of things would be anything by Marshall Goldsmith, especially his, I think he's his most recent work. And I'm really enjoying the reboot.io podcasts. They talk a lot about letting things go and focusing on the most important things. Great. Well, Sung Hey, I really appreciate you making time to uh, come on the show and share your wisdom and experience. And uh, thanks so much. I think you gave uh, myself and listeners a lot to think about. Thanks. It was great being on your show. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.